When you move in with someone, whether it's uh, you become their roommate or you get married and you move into the same space, one of the things that you have to negotiate very early on is um, the decor, the design, whose stuff stays and whose stuff goes, right? When the guy's like, where are all my karate trophies going? (laughs) And the wife's like, we got a beautiful unfinished basement, that would just be the perfect backdrop for all your karate trophies. Or maybe the wife, this is a stereotype, forgive me. Maybe the wife is like, where am I going to put all my shoes? Like I say, we have very lovely trash bins out here and you can put all your shoes in there. Uh, I remember when Aaron and I got married, we had to do a little bit of negotiating of that. And there was one art piece in particular that became not a source of tension because we don't fight, but, but a, a, a source of um, conversation. And uh, it's, uh, it's a piece that I purchased when I was on a missions trip to Ecuador. I bought it in an open-air market, and it just, I always thought it was cool. And the first time Erin saw it, her reaction was not what I was hoping. I'm going to show it to you, and we're going to do a little poll this morning. We're going to do a little poll this morning. So this is, my, this is the piece of art <laughs> that I purchased at an open-air market in, in Ecuador. And um, so let's do a little poll this morning. How many people, you, you, you kind of like this? You like this? Anybody? All right. Okay. Good taste. Good taste. Good taste. Good taste. Okay. Good taste. All right. So the rest of you don't have your glasses on, huh? Is that what's going on? So this, uh, uh, anybody love this? Anybody love this? Because this is never going to hang in our house. Um, you know, things like art and decor and design and anything that we uh, have really a subjective opinion on very much is uh, subjective to the individual viewing it, right? We have, we have phrases that we use. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's beautiful. One man's trash is another man's treasure. And the way that you see something, the way that you look at something makes all the difference in the world in how you respond to that. Okay? So this morning, we're going to look at a story where there's a room full of people, and everyone is watching Jesus. Everyone is looking at Jesus because Jesus is the guest of honor at this feast. Everyone's eyes are on Jesus, but there's only one woman in the room who sees him in a certain way. She sees him like no one else sees him, and it makes all the difference. And here's what I want to say to you this morning, that if you see Jesus... By God's grace, by his spirit, if you can see Jesus the way that she did that night, it will make all the difference in your life, too. So Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, I'm going to read to you verses 3 through 9 from the ESV. It'll be on the screen behind me if you need it. It says that while he, speaking of Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know anything about Simon the leper, but the general consensus is that this was a man who suffered of leprosy at one time, and Jesus healed him. And now Simon the leper, because he's been healed by Jesus, is throwing this feast in honor of Jesus, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And he was reclining at a table, and then a woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment, ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignant, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, 
What she has done will be told in memory of her. This morning, we're going to work through this story using a basic journalism tool, sometimes known as the reporter's questions. It's, it's the five W's and the one H. It's questions like who, what, where, when, why, and how. Okay? We're going to use those six questions to work through our text, not in that exact order, but those exact questions. And the first question that we're going to answer this morning is this. Who is this woman? Who is she? In Mark's text, she's nameless. Mark doesn't give her a name, but there are parallel texts in Matthew chapter 26 and in John chapter 12 where we learn her identity, and this woman has a name, and her name is Mary, and this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So this is a Mary that we've already seen on two other occasions. This was the Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus when her sister Martha was busy running around getting ready and doing things, and this is the Mary who thought that she had lost her brother Lazarus and ran out to Jesus hoping that he could do something, hoping against hope. Mary was a disciple of Jesus, she was a dear friend of Jesus, and she was a financial supporter of Jesus' ministry. She invested into Jesus. And Mary, we think about her, she has seen Jesus' ministry. She's seen him do miracles and healings and signs and wonders. She's heard his teaching. She's literally sat at his feet and listened to him teach. And Mary, don't forget this, she lives every day with a reminder of his power. Every morning when she wakes up and sees Lazarus, it's a reminder of who Jesus is and what he did. Because if you don't know the story, her, her brother Lazarus had died and had been dead for four days. And then Jesus arrived on the scene and called him out of the tomb. So when Mary comes into this room and does this act that we're going to look at a little closer, the first thing we need to notice is this. This is a response. This is not her initiating something. This is her responding to what she knows about Jesus. And the truth is for you and me is that when we come to Jesus, or more importantly, the way that we come to Jesus, the way we approach Jesus is always a response. A response to who he is, a response to what we believe to be true about him, and a response that will be equal to the level of our understanding and appreciation for him. What does this mean? It means that you and I need to pay close attention to what's happening in our hearts Whenever we're in a room where people are talking about Jesus, singing about Jesus, learning about Jesus, reading about Jesus, what happens in our heart? That will give you a clear indicator as to who you see him to be, your level of excitement, your level of gratitude, your level of wonder, your level of awe. Or is it old news? I've heard it before. Mark 14, I've heard this story preached so many times, right? What is your response in your heart? What's the response in my heart whenever we start talking about, thinking about, singing about Jesus? We see, we see in this story what Mary's response was. So it's always a response. Who is she? She's married. Second question, what did she pour? What did she pour? In the text, in the text it says that she poured an alabaster flask of anointment, ointment, I keep saying anointment, ointment of pure nard. A couple things about this that I learned in my studies. This flask was a sealed container of white opaque stone from Albastron, which was a city in Egypt. In John chapter 12, in John's telling of the story, we learn that this container contained a whole pound of this. This was a lot of perfume, a whole pound of perfume. This was likely, commentators think this was a family heirloom, and possibly this was her marriage dowry. 
So this is a big deal to her. This is her sort of golden ticket. This is what she was going to use to, 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 to buy her way into a marriage, into a family in that culture. Now, nard was made from the root of a Himalayan plant that was found in India, and it had a tremendously strong fragrance. So when she did this, it just filled the room. It was a very powerful perfume. And the word pure here is from the Greek word pistikos, which means that it was of the best quality. This is the real deal, okay? This is mayonnaise, not Miracle Whip. This is butter, not margarine. This is thick slab bacon from a pig, not quote-unquote turkey bacon. Don't call it bacon. And the value of this was, in today's um, dollars, it was about $30,000, about, 30, about a year's wages, thirty dollars to $40,000. And she comes in the room, she takes the very best that she has. Really, she's holding in her hand, in some ways, her hope for her own future. And she pours it out, drenches Jesus with it. And look at the response of the disciples in the room. The very men whose hearts should have said, Jesus deserves that. He, he, he's worth everything. He's worth it all. Look at their response. It actually says that they scolded her. That's a, that, that phrase, they scolded her, it, it's supposed to stir up this imagery in the mind of the reader of angry horses sort of pounding their hooves and snorting indignantly. That's what's happening here. Now, how humiliating do you think this was at first for poor Mary? Here she is, making herself vulnerable, giving everything she has to Jesus, believing that what she's doing matters and means something, and then the inner circle, Jesus' closest followers, begin to scold her. Now, in the other gospel accounts, it makes it clear that Judas is the main person who has the issue here, but Mark is implying that he wasn't the only one. Judas wasn't the only one. They all kind of had an issue here. Now, part of the reason why they may have justified their complaint was this. This event happened two days prior to the Passover. The evening before the Passover, it was customary for gifts on the evening of the Passover to be given to the poor. It was part of the Passover celebration. The night before the Passover, people would give gifts to the poor. So here it is, two nights before the Passover, and the disciples are thinking, hey, tomorrow night is the night we're supposed to give stuff like that to help poor people. But the truth is, and we learn this in some of the other texts, they don't really care about the poor. It's not the poor they're concerned about. It's themselves. And they care about themselves. They care about how maybe they might have personally profited from that. If we had sold that, Judas is thinking, I could have skimmed a little bit off the top and kept it. Maybe some of them felt like they were outdone in that moment by Mary. They're like, I don't have anything like that to give to Jesus. And so they felt envious of what she did. But whatever, whatever reason, they scold her, they rebuke her. And Jesus says to them, hey, leave her alone. Don't you love his straightforwardness there? Hey, chill, leave her alone. The poor you always have with you, and you can always do something for them. Now, it's important for us to pause here. Jesus is not speaking down on poverty and poor. He's not saying don't care. For, in fact, the heart of our God, if you read the scriptures in their totality, is he has a heart for those who have no voice. He has a heart for those who has no, no resources. And as the people of God, we should care for them. We should serve them. We should speak for them. Jesus isn't saying don't do anything for the poor. He cares very much about the poor. So what is he saying here? I remember in October of 2004, my brother-in-law, Derek, and I drove down to the Bronx to go to game one of the ALCS between the Yankees and the Red Sox. And in that particular game, the Yankees jumped out to a huge lead. I think they were up 10 nothing a few innings in. And we were sitting out in the bleachers, and I remember like getting so caught up 
in the celebration. So like wired, so excited that as the Yankees began to score runs, I just hugged everybody. So I'm just like hugging strangers, hugging people I don't know. And the, the memory that is most vivid in my mind, and I to this day don't know why I did this, I stood up on my bench. There's not seats with backs in the bleachers. There's pretty much just benches. I stood up on my bench and faced the crowd that was behind me. And like I was the conductor of an orchestra, I started to like, like work the crowd during one of the celebrations. I looked like a crazy man in the bleachers, hugging people, kissing people, and conducting this invisible orchestra. You know, there are certain environments and certain moments when a specific behavior is okay, right? But that's not okay, and if I walk through Target and try to do that sort of stuff, it's not going to go as well. Not every single moment. And Jesus is saying here, you always have the poor, and you have a responsibility to them always. You should always take care of them. But Mary understands what you don't understand. This is a special moment. This is, it's two days before the Passover. Jesus is about to walk to the cross, and only Mary gets it. This is a special moment. In other moments, what she just did, it's probably wasteful. It's probably reckless. It's probably irresponsible. But Jesus is saying, in this moment, it's the only thing that makes sense. Next question, when did she pour? If she understands the season, if she understands the moment, when did she actually pour? Now, this story that we just read is bookended by two brief descriptions of what was happening around Jesus, sort of the behind-the-scenes events. Let's read them really quick. Verse 1, it said this, It was now two days before the Passover, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And here's what's happening behind the scenes. The chief priests, the eight chief priests, and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth, not just arrest him, but how to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, during the Passover, Jerusalem's population would swell by three to five times. And there was also a legend that the Messiah would come during the Passover. So the Romans were always on guard during the Passover. So the chief priests and the scribes were like, we can't start trouble now. We're going to find out they they ended up doing it, but we can't start trouble now because the Romans will interfere because they'll be anxious, they'll be nervous about it, but they're trying to figure out how do we kill Jesus. This is happening behind the scenes. Then we get this look into this dining room in Bethany. After the story ends, look how it's bookended, verse 10. Then, immediately after the story, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know what Mark does here? Mark's a great writer. Mark masterfully frames the story. Here's this beautiful gift for Mary, this beautiful offering, this beautiful scene of worship. And he frames it with men who are out to destroy Jesus. And there's not just chronological significance. In fact, this may not even be the right chronology. We're not sure. It's more about theological significance that Mark is trying to accomplish here because Mary, in the center of this story, stands in stark contrast to the scheming chief priest and the scheming scribes who want to kill Jesus. They don't understand who he is. They are threatened by him. The religious establishment is threatened by his message and his radical ways. They want to kill him. Mary stands in stark contrast to them, but Mary also stands in stark contrast to Judas, who was close to Jesus who knew who he was but was selfish and deceived and did not understand for a second what Jesus had come to do. Now where, let's answer another question, where did Mary pour? In Mark's account, where did she pour? It says that she poured it where? On his head. She anointed his head. Now if you read John's version, 
And, and if you read Matthew's version, you're going to read that she also, also anointed his feet and his entire body. Now, that's probably true because that was a pound of nard in there. That's a lot to pour on someone's head. Even if she intended just to pour it on his head, it was going to go all over his body and all the way to his feet. So why does Mark omit that? Why does Mark leave that out? And the reason why Mark focuses on the fact that Mary anoints his head is because in the Old Testament, the anointing on the head was only for two categories of people, the priests and the kings. So Mark focuses on the anointing of the head because this is a symbolic anointing that Jesus is both our great high priest and our true king. So if you're reading Mark in its original setting and you see that Mary anoints his head, you might be thinking, oh, the story's about to get good. Jesus is about to ascend to his throne. He's about to reign and rule, right? Well, not quite. And how do we know that's not the answer? Well, because we know the end of the story, but also by answering the next question, which is this, how did she pour? How did she pour? And there's two things we have to notice. One's obvious, and one I've never even realized before. And the first thing is this. When it says in the Greek that she poured the anointing oil on his head, that verb for pour is a very specific verb. And it's not the verb that was used to anoint kings. It was always the verb that was used to anoint corpses. So when Mark writes this, he uses the verb pour, which you would only use to anoint a dead body, but she pours it on a living man over his head. What, what does this mean? The Gospel of Mark is ultimately asking one question of its reader. Is Jesus the Messiah or not? And what does the word Messiah means? Messiah simply means the anointed one. So when you get to this point in Mark, in Mark chapter 14, and you see Jesus anointed, you say, finally, he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. But the people who read it in the original language would have gone, hold on. He's not being anointed for a coronation. He's being anointed for a burial. So that's the first thing we need to notice. But the other thing we notice is about the way in which she poured the oil. Now, I love to have, uh, I like to have mints in my car at all time because I just, I, I just, it's just sort of like, I don't know, fresh breath when I'm hungry. It makes me feel like I'm not hungry anymore. And my, 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 my favorite mint is uh, right now is this Icebreakers Sours. They're, uh, they're, they're just like fruity and tasty, and I just love them. It's like a little bit of joy. Uh, and so, um, but what I love about the Icebreakers is that they have two different openings. You notice that? You ever seen these up close? Can you see it from where you're sitting? Uh, on the bottom, there's a side that says many, and on the top, there's an opening that says one. And it's two different openings. And if you're opening the top one, it's a very, very small opening. And there really is only room for you to get one of those mints out. If you open the bottom and it's many, it's like half of the thing pops open. And then greedy little fingers can get as many as they want. So you know which side I use. In fact, I tape the many side shut. It doesn't even work on mine. But this, this, this sort of like measuring of how much I want to give, this sort of stinginess, and this is very much facilitating my stinginess, so that I can only open the side that says one. But now, listen, when, when Mary brings his alabaster jar to Jesus, it would have had a slender neck, it would have been a teardrop-shaped container, and the only way to open this was to snap it. You had to snap the neck of this thing so that the whole content would be used and poured out. Thus, the ointment and the jar serve as a symbol of the totality of Mary's giving. In other words, once it was opened, it couldn't be resealed. It could not be contained. It was the point of no return. We see here that Mary was all in. She was fully committed to giving everything, every precious thing that she had, giving it to Jesus. Why? This is our last question this morning. 
Why did she pour? Two reasons. Number one, she poured because she saw the true person of Jesus. She saw who he really was. She saw his humility. See, she'd seen Jesus both in public and in private because he would stay at their house sometimes when he would travel through Bethany. Bethany was a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. It was a convenient place for him to stay. On the south side of a hill, he would go and he would stay there. She saw who he was, not just who he was when he was in front of the crowds, but who he was all the time. And she was taken with him. She saw his humility, his kindness, his power. But here's the other thing that she saw about the person of Jesus that everyone else missed. She saw that he was both the Messiah. Everybody was getting that. He was both the Messiah and the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah talked about. So Jewish people thought that those were two different people. The Messiah would be a king, a reigning and ruling king, and the suffering servant would be someone else. There was no place in their framework of their religion or their theology that that person could be the same person. And Mary saw that he was. She saw the beauty in Jesus. Remember we said earlier, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So the question this morning that we have to stop and ask ourselves is, who do I see Jesus to be? Who do you see Jesus to be? A nice guy, a good teacher, great example, get out of hell free card, someone who came to make you happy, healthy, wealthy. Listen, however you think you answer that question, I mean, you can say whatever you want because you probably know the right answer. The clearest indicator of who you actually see Jesus to be is how you respond to him with what is most valuable to you. Does that make sense? The clearest indicator of who you actually see Jesus to be is how you respond to him with what is most valuable to you. What's most valuable to you? Whether it's a position, a relationship, family, healthy kids, success. How do we respond to Jesus? Do we love Jesus more than those things or do we love those things more than Jesus? Can we really pour those things out before him and say, hey, I'm gonna gonna use this to worship you and not to build my own kingdom? How do we respond to him with what's most valuable to us? And then the last thing is this. Mary didn't just see the person of Jesus. She saw the purpose of Jesus. At this point, we've walked through Mark. Jesus has spoken over and over with increasing plainness about his death. At first, it was a little bit veiled. But by now, he's very clear about his death. And somehow, the disciples keep missing it. Over and over, they miss it. The concept of a suffering Messiah did not meet their, their prediction or their desires or their understanding. But Mary, Mary was the only one in the room who yielded to his teaching and accepted what was coming. She realized that when tragedy came, when Jesus suffered, when Jesus died, she realized that it would be unlikely at that point that she would be able to do anything. So that's why Jesus said she did what she could. She did what she could. Before he died, she anointed him for his burial. In verse 9, he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, you're going to remember her. You're going to talk about her. You know what's cool about that? This morning in this service, we've fulfilled that prophecy. Every time this story is read, every time that verse is read, it comes true all over again. Jesus said, whenever the gospel is told, you're going to remember her. Not Peter, not James, not John, not this person, not that event, not that healing, not that miracle this story, you're going to remember her. Well, why? Why remember her? A few reasons. Because she shows us what the right response to Jesus is. Because she shows us that by the Spirit, we can understand the moment that we're in. 
and make the right decisions. She shows us that we can stand in stark, stark contrast to those around us and how they react to Jesus. But ultimately, we will remember her because Jesus remembered her as he suffered. Now, how do we know this? Earlier this week, I was reading a book called Jesus, a Theography by Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola. They talked about the power of smell, the sense of smell. Remember, this nard had a powerful smell, and Mary poured a pound of it on Jesus two days before the Passover. Here's what they wrote in their book. I'm going to read to you a little bit. At birth, the mechanism of the nose is already capable of detecting and identifying 10,000 different scents. The odor receptors of the nose are more sophisticated and complex than either the eye or the ear. Of all our sense organs, the nose is the one that connects fastest to the brain because there is an immediate link between the nose and the brain. Odor information works on the brain directly, unlike the indirect route taken by auditory and visual. Fragrances, you know this, they have the power to affect our moods. You walk into the kitchen after church today and you smell something cooking, what happens to your mood? You're lifted, you're excited, you're eager. The sense of smell is wired in the brain to our emotions. There is a wiring in our brains between what we smell and how we feel. The sense of smell is also a trigger of memory. In fact, smell is the most powerful releaser of memory. Nothing can bring back a time, a place, or an emotion better than an aroma. Now, the ancient Israelites, according to this book, according to other studies, they didn't take baths every day. They're not like us regularly taking baths. Unless you were wealthy, you actually didn't have access in your own home to a bath. They did not take baths every day. They washed their hands all the time between meals and before meals because of the different rules they had, but they washed their bodies even less than the Egyptians would wash their bodies. And now remember, Mary anoints Jesus with a pound of nard two days before the Passover, the Passover, the night on which Jesus was betrayed. So what does this mean? Every story that we're going to read from this point forward, every story we're going to study over the next three weeks, every step that Jesus took the rest of the way, he smelled it. He smelled it. He smelled like it, and he himself smelled it. And so when Jesus goes before into the garden to pray, he smells like it, and he can smell it. And when he's brought into his trial, he smells like it. And when he's whipped and he's beaten, he smells like it. And when he goes to the cross, he smells like it. Here's what it means. That people, the Roman Empire and the religious establishment, they stripped Jesus of his basic rights. They stripped Jesus of his innocence. They stripped him of his clothes. They stripped him of his dignity. They stripped him of his skin. They stripped him of his blood. They stripped him of his life, but they couldn't strip the perfume off him. They couldn't strip the smell of the perfume off him. They could not strip Mary's worship of him off of him. Jesus came into this world smelling what? Smelling barnyard stuff. Hay, straw, animals, animals feces, stinky shepherds. But Jesus left this world smelling what? Perfume. Perfume. Why? Because one woman saw what no one else saw. So the question for us is, what do we see? When we see Jesus, who do we see? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work, do a deep work in our hearts this morning. Let us not just be moved in our emotions. Let us be stirred in our spirits. Call us to repentance. The, the anointing, the ointment that we hold in our hands, whether it's the respect of other people, whether it's being known for something, whether it's power, control, 
pleasure, the thing that we will not pour out and offer to Jesus because we don't see him as more beautiful than the thing that we're holding in our hands. Call us to deep heart repentance, to turn away from those lesser things and to set our hearts' affections and our minds' attention on the beauty of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus. He lived for us. He died for us to make us right, to make us new, to bring us home. We couldn't do it. He did it. We thank you, God. We bless your name. We honor you, O God.